So let's pray before we get going any further. Heavenly Father, just thank you for this evening. We thank you for a chance to get into your word. And I pray, God, that you would just speak to your people tonight. Lord, there are so many applications that we can make. Would you just help each one to receive and hear that which they need to hear tonight from your word in Jesus' name. So verse 1, verse 1 says, The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. So if you remember back in the visit to Abraham, there were three angels that came. It says angels slash men. Uh, it spoke of them as men. Uh, and we know that one of them, because of what it says in uh, verse 18, or in 18, verse 1, that the Lord spoke to Abraham. So we believe that was a Christophany. That was sometimes the angel of the Lord is the Lord himself. And so now it says that there are two angels arriving at Sodom. So that means that really the Lord had sent the other two angels ahead to take care of the business that he had given to them, which was going to be executing judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, there's another important piece of information here if we look at it closely. We're told that Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. So what? Maybe he was just hanging out, you know, got off his skateboard, was having lunch. No. That was supposed to be funny. I don't, okay, whatever. No, sitting in the gateway meant that Lot was a leader of the city, maybe a judge, but certainly at least one of the leaders of the city, and that's what they did. Well, all the women were doing all the work, by the way. The guys were always sitting at the gateway, you know, chatting back and forth. I don't know how great that is. Um, but in any way, he was sitting in the gateway at that point in time. That means that he was immersed in what was going on in that particular city. And he was in the leadership of that city. And yet, this city is so wicked that God has to send his angels to destroy it. So we have to ask ourselves a question. How did Lot get to the place where he could be in leadership in a city that was so wicked. Well, if you remember back in chapter 13, do you remember that Lot was given a choice by Abraham of where to pitch his tents? Do you remember that? And Lot, as Pastor Michael had pointed out, should have deferred that choice to his uncle Abraham. That would have been the right and customary thing to do, but Lot didn't do that. He spied out the land, and he picked the best portion, what looked the best to him, and it happened to be towards Sodom. It was a fertile and lush region, and he said, okay, thank you, Uncle Abraham. I'm going to take that one. Well, that's mistake number one by Lot, and we're going to see several mistakes that he makes. Mistake number two is that he pitched his tents in the cities of the valley as far as Sodom. Now, we don't know exactly what that means, how close or how far, but it was definitely towards Sodom. It was in somewhere in the cities of that particular valley, uh, and he did that even though if we look at chapter 13, verse 13, it tells us that the men there, the men in Sodom, were exceedingly wicked and sinners against the Lord. But Lot pitched his tent toward them. Then if you remember, Lot was captured during a war between several different kings. And here comes good old Uncle Abraham again. Boy, he's a good uncle. He rescued Lot. He brought Lot back with all of his people, all of his possessions. Now, I don't know about you, but I would think that that might have been a good time to reconsider where you were going to pitch your tents. But, mistake number three. It appears that eventually, if not right then, that Lot actually moved into the city. We're not absolutely sure. He could have been very close outside the city, but it appears that he lived actually in the city in spite of of the reputation and in spite of what had already happened to him. Now you go, well, what was their reputation? Well, Ezekiel 16, 49, 50. And uh, I have a slide up there, so if you want to write down these references, we don't have to turn to all of them just to uh, save a little bit of time. We're going to turn to some. But Ezekiel 16, 49, and 50. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. Thus they were haughty or prideful and committed abominations before me. Now, so some people say, well, the major sin of, of uh, Sodom was that they didn't help the poor and needy. Well, no, that's part of it. I think it's a result of what was going on in their minds and hearts. Jude 7 says this, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them 
since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. I think these go hand in hand. You see, it says that uh, they had abundant food and careless ease. In other words, life was pretty easy for them. And you know, oftentimes when life is really easy, that's the, t- the worst time for us. We can get involved in things that we shouldn't. We have too much free time on our hands and we get involved in what we shouldn't. And obviously that's what was happening here. And as a result of that, they weren't even taking care of the poor and the needy in their city. They were wicked. It was an exceedingly wicked place. So you have to ask yourself the question, what was drawing Lot to this place? Well, we're not told specifically, but it appears, and especially if you look down quickly to verse 19, that Lot preferred the city as opposed to the country for whatever reason. Now, that's interesting since he actually had to separate from Abraham because his flocks were getting so big that his men and Abraham's men were fighting over the land and the water. Do you remember that? They couldn't stay together in the same area because he was being so blessed by God and his flocks were multiplying so well. Now, think about that. If he's moving into the city, it's not too likely that he's going to continue in raising those flocks. It's possible, but he probably had something else in mind. So then we ask ourselves the question, well, did he just feel more secure in a city than in the valley? Or... Was it possible that there was a lot more money to be made in the city of Sodom than what he already had, even though he'd been extremely blessed and was very wealthy at this time? And we think of some places that are pretty wicked and the wealth there. My first thought, of course, was Las Vegas. You know, there's a lot of wealth in Las Vegas, and it's exceedingly wicked. In fact, it's so wicked that they like to celebrate it on TV and tell you how wicked and sinful it really is. There's a lot of wealth. There's also a lot of poverty there. I've done a little, a little bit of homeless ministry there, and there's a lot of poverty there as well. So those are a couple of the reasons. Another reason you may think is, well, maybe Lot was just attracted to the sin itself and wanted to participate in it. And I would say that's a possibility if all we had was the Old Testament account. But guess what? Turn over to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. Close towards the end of your your Bible. 2 Peter 2. Verses 7 and 8. It says this. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. So it tells us that Lot was a righteous man and it tells us that he was tormented by the evil that surrounded him and yet he stayed in that city. Now, you might ask a question, well, how do we know this, and, and, and why would that? Well, I think we have to assume something. Remember, the lot had been adopted by Abraham, and Abraham, we know, was considered righteous because of his faith in God. And I think because of that, and because what we know about Abraham, we have to assume that Abraham taught Lot about Yahweh, about his God. And we'd have to assume that Peter then referred to Lot as righteous for the same reason that The New Testament teaches that Abraham was righteous, not because of works, but because of faith in God. Abraham believed God. Lot must have believed God as well to be righteous. But even though the sin of the men of Sodom was tormenting him, at this point, Lot made mistake number four. He tried to fit into his surroundings. He tried to just fit in, and he became part of all that was going on. As we continue on, it says, When he saw them, these men that came, he got up to meet them, and he bowed down with his face to the ground. Verse 2, My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night, and then go your way early in the morning. 
No, they answered, we'll spend the night in the square. Verse 3, but he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Now, when we look at this, what this really is, it's a typical negotiation in the Middle East at that time. This was custom that was taking place here. First of all, it was customary for one to offer their home for shelter for the night, protection, uh, and food. That was the customary thing. By the way, it was also customary for the first time for the people to refuse that. And and you know, if you've ever been over the Middle East, um, they love to negotiate things. They don't like it if you just pay for something. They want you to negotiate. So this was the custom. You offered your, your home and your shelter, and we said, oh, no, 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 no. So that the other person would then insist upon the fact that you come and stay with them and be under their roof. And this is typically what happened, and this is exactly what went on. But I think we see something even more than the normal negotiation here. I think it's pretty certain that even beyond the regular hospitality here, that Lot was concerned about what would happen if these men actually stayed out in the square, on the streets. And notice another thing, if you look back here in verse 2, he says, you can spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. It was like he's trying to rush him out of there. You know, he's kind of telling him, okay, you can stay overnight, but see you in the morning. I think he's very concerned of what might happen to these men or what they may see in this city. Well, in the next few verses, we're going to see why. Verse 4 says, Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, Where are the men who came with you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. If you wonder why it looks different, because I'm reading the NIV, so I don't have to translate the translation. What you see here is the evidence of the complete corruption of the city of Sodom here. As the Bible says, it was exceedingly wicked. And I think it's pretty obvious that this must have been a normal procedure. It didn't all of a sudden just happen one time that they decided to do this. That doesn't happen. They obviously, this was a normal practice for them. Now, in your Bible, it might have said, use the term, uh, know them. And then the translators added in carnally, know them carnally. Now, the translators did that because they wanted to make sure you understood what was going on. So there wouldn't be any mistake of what was transpiring. Now, unfortunately, some of those, as you might well have known, started in 1950 with the Metropolitan uh, Church. Some of those have tried to reinterpret what the Bible says here in order to promote homosexuality as not being wicked and not being a sin. And they have pointed out that the word no in Hebrew here can also be translated as acknowledge, consider, comprehend. And so they would say, see, you know, that, that's not really what it means. It could mean any of those things. And you know what? That's true. But we know that when we're looking at words that are translated differently at different times in the Bible, how do we figure out what it really means? Well, we have to look at the context. The context will determine which one of those translations is correct. So we are going to look at the context. Let's read the next three verses, starting in verse 6. It says, Lot went out to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, or in some translation it even says, No, my brothers. Don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. All right, I'm going to ask you, is the context clear enough for you? Lot says, don't do this wicked thing. Now, if they just kind of wanted to get to know them, would Lot say, don't do this wicked thing? I don't think so. It's clear that these men wanted to have homosexual relations with these strangers. So let me just say this, because today we have people trying to redefine things. And I want to make this really, really clear. 
We must let God's word define what is good and what is evil, not the world. We must let God's word define what is right and wrong, not the world. And we must let God's word define what is truth and what is a lie, not the world. We cannot get caught up just because we want to love people, which we do. And we want to see them come to the Lord. But we cannot let the society define what is good or evil, what is right or wrong, and what is truth and what is a lie. We must define it by God's word. Amen? Amen. Isaiah 5.20 says this. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe, who, I'm sorry, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. That's happening a lot in our world today. And the Bible made it very clear and you can look at the reference up there and write it down. If you read 2 Timothy 2.17 and Romans 1, the Bible makes it very clear that in the last days we will have many people calling good evil and evil good. Now, I want to ask you a question, though, because we get accused in the church of picking on the homosexuals. And I hope some of them are listening to this message tonight because we are not picking on the homosexuals but we will speak the truth of what happened. But I'm going to ask you a question. What if these men had taken Lot up on his offer to take the daughters instead? Would you think of that as less evil? I hope not. And I hope if you would, that you would come in and you would speak with me because I think you need a talking to. You see, we're not just picking on one sexual sin. The Bible teaches that any sex outside of the marriage unit, which is between a man and a woman, is sin. Heterosexual, homosexual, it doesn't matter. And God would have condemned the act of taking Lot's daughters just as much as he would have condemned the act of homosexual sex. And we need to make that clear to people. Because we want people to come to Christ and we want them to know the Lord. And we're not picking on any one particular sin. But what this does prove here is that this city was wicked to the core. And Lot, by his compromising, had put himself in a terrible position. In order to keep his reputation as one who honors his guests, as was the custom, he was willing to sacrifice his daughters to these wicked men. And I, I think, and I'm sure you did too as you read it, how horrible. How horrible. And, and of course, as I was reading it during the week, all I could think about is, Corey Nichols up here sharing Sunday morning and what he shared with us. How wicked it can be. And you have to ask yourself the question, why would Lot go this far to protect these men? You know, though this was a custom, did God instruct him to do that? And, you know, I had a little discussion with uh, Dr. Green and Pastor Michael today because I was looking at this and I was saying, well, what did God instruct? You know what? We don't know. Because God's instructions on how, how to treat uh, strangers and aliens didn't come until after the Exodus, in a written form at least. So we don't know what verbal instructions God had given up to this point. Or was this just a man-made tradition? And if it was, isn't it like man to take a tradition and take it to the extreme? And even if God had given instructions on how to treat an alien or stranger, I want to ask a question. Did Lot really think that allowing his daughters to be abused by these men would be a more godly thing than giving up to strangers? Now, granted, if we were putting it in baseball terms, Lot was in a pickle. He had placed himself between a rock and a hard place, as we say. And it was due at least partially because of his own compromise. He really put himself in a position where there could be no good outcome that he could see. But I want you to notice it as well. You never see Lot here crying out to God for help. Little did he know the help was right standing right next to him that he needed. But he wasn't crying out to God. It shows where his relationship with the Lord was. The Bible says Lot was righteous, but I don't think he was close to the Lord at all. 
So instead, he willingly offers up his daughters. Did you know that there was one more option according to custom? The one more option was, as a good host, that you would actually fight to the death to protect the people in your home. And Lot could have chosen that option. He could have fought to the death and protect the strangers and his daughters as well. Well, it turns out to be of no consequence because the men don't take him up on the offer. They have in mind what they want to do. Let's go to verse 9. It says, uh, get out of our way, they replied. And they said, this fellow came here as an alien, that's Lot, and now he wants to play the judge, which he already was doing apparently by sitting in the city gate. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Verse 11, then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so that they could not find the door. Now there's a big, very long point of application that I need to make here. Don't mess with God's holy angels. That's it. That's the big, long application. Don't mess with God's holy angels. So verse 12, the rescue begins. The two men said to Lot, do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here. Verse 13, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against his people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So they're giving Lot the picture of what's going to happen. They're giving him instructions as to what to do. And obviously Lot should know, whoa, I better listen to these guys because look what they just did. A question came to me as I was reading that. I don't know if it did to you or not. If you look back at uh, verse um, 20 of chapter 18, it says, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great and their sin is exceedingly grave. And it says here, um, right here in, in uh, verse 13, the outcry to the Lord against his people is so great that he has sent us to destroy the city. And I asked myself the question, where was the outcry coming from? I wonder, where was the outcry coming from? Obviously, it wasn't coming from these particular men. Um, it wasn't coming from Lot. Who was it coming from? And once again, if you want to know, you need to call tomorrow, the Bible Answer Show, to find out that answer. No, the answer is we don't know for sure. But I thought, could it be the victims of these men who really had taken over the city with their heinous acts? Could it have been the other people? Could it have been the poor and the needy crying out? because no one was taking care of them? Or could it be, and this was a thought we had, could it be that it was creation itself groaning the way it teaches us in the New Testament, waiting to be delivered? Interesting thought. But the cry went out to God, and he was going to do something about it. Verse 14, so Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were pledged to marry his daughter. So I think what we see here is that these daughters, there may have been more daughters, we don't know. I tend to believe it was these same daughters, um, and they were pledged to be married, as it says here, and which means that they hadn't uh, yet uh, consummated the marriage. You guys know the betrothal period is the same as marriage. So by law, they were married, and they were sons-in-law, betrothed to the daughters, not having uh, had sexual relations with them yet because that was prohibited until the final time. He said, hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. So obviously Lot believed these men. He went to the sons-in-law following instructions and says, hey, you got to get out of the city because the Lord's going to destroy it. But look what his sons-in-law say or look what they think. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. 
It seems here that Lot, because of his compromise and because of his weak relationship with the Lord, had lost any credibility even with his own family. That they would think that he's not serious and that he's just joking about this situation. Verse 15, with the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped, grasped yeah, I can say that word, his hand and the hands of his wife and his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. And you look at this again and you go, Lot did what? He hesitated? What in the world would make him hesitate and not just go? But he hesitated, and the angels had to grab him and lead him out of the city. Verse 17, as soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, flee for your lives. Don't look back. I know you're familiar with this. And don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, get this, no, my lords, please. Your servant has found favor in your eyes and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me and I will die. And again, is, it, is he afraid of the country? Is he afraid of the mountains? Why? Well, I don't understand. Why is he saying this? Verse 20 says, look, here's a town, rather than in the mountains, here's a town near enough to run to, and it's small. Let me flee to it. It is very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. I mean, you've got to be kidding me. Come on, Lot. What's it going to take for you to get the picture here? Even at this point, you're not willing to completely trust God and follow the instructions that these angels are given to you? I mean, does he not realize that these angels have been sent specifically to save him from death? And wouldn't he realize, well, if God's going to save me from death, is he going to throw me out in the mountains just to put me in disaster, as he's saying? But before we get too hard on Lot, don't we do this sometimes? Don't we sometimes think, well, God saved me from this one, but then the next time something comes up is, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't, I, God, and you're complaining and whining God, and God's saying, wait, 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 wait. Didn't I work for you last time? Why would I not follow through and work for you again this time? You know, we tend to do that. We tend to think that as soon as God's done something good for us, the next thing is we're going to face disaster. Maybe it's because we all know we deserve it. I don't know. But we do think that way. Verse 21, he said to him, very well, I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of. Now I look at that and I go, what grace and what patience. Because I'm just telling you, it's a good thing that I'm not one of those holy angels. Because I would have said, Lot, I grabbed your hands once. I'm going to grab it again. I'd have taken him right back, sat him down and said, just stay here and get fried, okay? That's what I would have done. I don't know about you guys. Oh, man, some of you guys are looking at me like, really? And you're a pastor? Well, I probably wouldn't have done that, but I would have thought it at least. I would have lost patience, but what amazing grace and patience Lot is shown here. Verse 22 says, but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. So the angels were limited on acting until Lot could get away into safety. And it says that is why the town was called Zoar. Zoar just means little or insignificant. Verse 23, by the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, including all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. Verse 26, the famous verse, but Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And I'm not going to go into all the you know, scientific 
reasons why we can believe this story. I wouldn't need a scientific reason. The Bible says it, so I know it's true. But there is plenty of science behind it, and you've seen some of the pictures already. Pastor Michael put one of, one of the many ones. They say this is Lot's wife. Um, but that's not the important part. The important part is, again, why would Lot's wife look back? Now, the word look in Hebrew is nabat, and it means to scan or look intently at by implication to regard with pleasure, favor, or care. Boy, that's, that's the answer to the question, isn't it? See, this was a matter of the heart for Lot's wife. She was looking back longingly at this sinful place that she had lived in. As J. Vernon McGee said, she belonged to the country club. She was probably part of the sewing club. You know, she had immersed herself into this place and she was looking back longingly to the city. It was obvious that she was very comfortable in that environment. Now, some scholars believe that she actually turned back. They say the language means she turned back. And I think there's some evidence that might support that. And that because she turned back, she actually just got caught up in the destruction. Other scholars say, no, this was a direct intervention of God and he was going to make it happen. We don't know the answer to that. But we do know that her heart was in the wrong place. Well, verse 27, early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. Now, I want you to put yourself in Abraham's place. Remember, Abraham had, had made this bargain with God that if there were 10 righteous people, the city would not be destroyed. Now, I personally think that he made the bargain like this for a specific reason. I think he wasn't sure if Lot was a righteous man. And so he at least said, there's got to be 10 there. So if there's 10 there, he might have been thinking maybe somebody other than Lot is righteous there. We don't know that for sure. But it's certainly a possibility. Now Abraham is looking out. And, you know, I, I thought of this. I don't know if any of you. I live up by Mountain Gate Park, and I have a little deck up there. And when there are fires out in the mountains, you know, I can stand on that deck, and oftentimes I can see the smoke and sometimes even the flame. I remember even one time my mom was driving across the 71, and fire broke out on both sides of the hill there. And she was on her cell phone with me, and I was standing there, watching the smoke from exactly where she was. And what a horrible feeling that was. And I imagine that's how Abraham must have felt. He couldn't have known yet whether Lot was dead or alive. But God was merciful to Lot and Abraham. Verse 29 says, So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham. And that's important. He remembered Abraham. And he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. I think it speaks to God's love for Abraham as well as Lot. Now, I think that one of the most overlooked accounts of Lot's life is this, and I'll be honest with you, as many commentaries as I read when I prepare to do a study, not one commentary spoke about this. It's very overlooked. And that is that as we look at the life of Abraham and how he deals with Lot, Abraham becomes a type of God the Father. You say, oh, how's that possible? Well, we're not saying Abraham was a perfect man by any means. We know he made a lot of mistakes. That's not what we're saying. But in the actions he took towards his nephew Lot, he demonstrated the love of God the Father. Look back and think about it. First, he adopted Lot, who was his nephew, when Lot was in need. He was an orphan. He took him in and he treated him like a son and he loved him dearly. Galatians 4, 4 through 7 says this, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you are sons, 
God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Boy, that speaks to what Abraham did for Lot. He was an heir to Lot. Lot took care of him. He adopted him. Ephesians 1, 5, and 6 says this. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. So Abraham is a type of God the Father in this. And then we think about this. Abraham gave Lot everything he needed to be successful. And he gave him everything he needed to follow the Lord. Now it's interesting, in Isaiah 5, God speaks of Israel as a vineyard. And he says to Israel, being represented by this vineyard, he has done everything for the vineyard to help it bear good fruit. And you can look back in that. It's a really great chapter to read. Um, God gave this vineyard everything it needed to be successful. But in Isaiah 5, 3 and 4, it says, Judge between me, God, and my vineyard, which is Israel. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? And it's a rhetorical question. It's God saying, I have done everything for you. And yet the, the allegory is that the vineyard produced only sour grapes. Even though God had given it every opportunity to produce great fruit, it only produced sour grapes. Once again, Abraham provided everything Lot needed to be successful, to prosper, and to know the Lord. He must have felt the same way that God did about Israel. The third way in which Abraham was a type of God the Father is he rescued Lot from a life of what would most likely have been slavery to worldly kings. And he set him free. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says, For he, God, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, God sets us free as well. We would live a life in, in slavery to sin if it were not for what Jesus did for us. So God rescued us out of a life of slavery. And Abraham had rescued Lot out of a life of slave, slavery and set him free. So it's a really neat thing to think about. You know, what God does for us is so similar as to what Abraham did for Lot. And he gives us every opportunity to prosper and to follow him. Well, if we look at the overall themes in this chapter, and again, we're not covering the last few verses um, just because of sake of time, but there's four major themes that I think that we should look at in what we read here tonight. The first one is God is speaking to us and he's saying, do not get attached to the world and its wicked ways. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. You could turn there if you want. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Here's our instructions. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. And then in Mark 8, Mark 8, 35 and 36, it says this. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what is a profit for a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul. I know you're familiar with these verses. Well, we can see certainly Lot had become attached to his life in Sodom. He was entrenched in it, and it had a great effect on his relationship with the Lord. And we have to realize that we're no different than Lot. It's not necessarily about where we're living. I know a lot of people read this and go, okay, well, what, what do I do? You know, 
do I pick up and move because I'm in a dark place? Well, you know what? <laughs> Anywhere we move in this world today is a dark place. Where could we go that isn't a dark place? Now, there are some places darker than others. That's, that's true. But you see, our, our purpose is a little bit different because Jesus wants us in the world. He said in his prayer to the Father in John 17, 15, and 16, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So we're told that we are going to be in this world. We can't run away from it. In fact, we're told that instead of running from the world, that we're to be salt and light in the world. Matthew 5, 13 and 14. And we're told that in this world that we should live a life powered by the Holy Spirit and we should live a godly life which reveals the light of Christ to the world that we live in. We don't have the option of running away. But that being said, all of us do have to make decisions on what things of the world attract us so much that we need to flee from those things. If it's taking us away from our relationship to the Lord, we might need to move away. And sometimes that could be a physical place. And it may, it may not even be for us, but it may be, and I know that many of you have had to make this decision. Am I going to leave my kids in the public school, or is it so dark? Is it so dark that it's going to affect their relationship with the Lord to a point where I cannot leave them anymore? That's a decision that's a legitimate decision that you may need to make. And I pray for you in that. I did that with my own kids. There was a point where I, working in the public school, know better about what was going on there than anybody. And I chose to have my kids go into a Christian school. You may choose homeschool. You have to make those tough decisions. Is it a, is it a place that is so dark that I need to remove myself from it? And that can be true even where you live. You know, I, I would think a lot of people in San Francisco that are Christians would have to make that decision and other places as well. But it also may be that God has placed you in a specific place to bring light to that darkness. And I'd love to give you some more examples, but we don't have the time. You need to make those decisions and you need to seek the Lord. Number two, and this is especially for men, especially men with families, but it applies to all of us. You need to know this. Your compromise will not just affect you, but it will affect your entire family. Your compromise will cause you to lose your witness. It'll cause you to lose your credibility. It will cause you to lose your authority. And it will cause you to lose your effectiveness in bringing your children up in the ways of the Lord. I hate to be so blunt, but it's the truth. When you begin to think that it's okay to compromise, and we all struggle with it, we're all tempted to compromise in areas of our life. Oh, this will be okay. And I'm not telling you which ones there are. For some people, it may be what I watch on TV. For some, it may be what I listen to on the radio. Only you can know. But just be sure of this. You will lose all those things if you continue to compromise. And it will affect your family. Lot's life was spared, but his compromise had devastating effects on his family. His wife and his sons-in-laws were destroyed. His daughters, as you'll see when we get into the following verses, had no trust in the Lord whatsoever, but instead reasoned from the wisdom of the world because that's what they had experienced. And it's no different today. Your children will be directly affected by your relationship to the Lord and how serious you are. If we're in compromise, just like Lot's son-in-law, sons-in-law, your kids are going to know it. And they're going to believe that you're not serious about your relationship with the Lord. So it's good for us to regularly examine where we are with the Lord, to look at our walk, to see if there's areas in our life that we're compromising in. And it's good to hear from our brothers and sisters in the Lord and not be defensive if one comes to you and says, hey, brother, sister, I want to talk to you about something that I see in your life. We shouldn't be defensive. We should be praising God that they love us enough to tell us so that we can get out of it. And if that's you tonight, there's a solution. You repent, you turn from it, you confess to the Lord, you receive forgiveness, and he cleanses you from all unrighteousness. Don't hold on to it. Take care of it. 
Point number three, God will judge sin. And you can be absolutely certain of that. He will judge sin. Now, I know that most of you know that. And most of you can look back to the Bible and, and you say, I know God judges sin because of the flood. That was our first great example. And this story, this event is another example. And I know that some of you are going to get ridiculed if you tell any of your friends, God is going to judge sin. <laughs> yeah, right. I've been hearing that for 50 years. When's it going to happen? 2 Peter 3, 7 through 9 says this. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God will judge. He's been patient. Let me ask you a question. Anybody in here been saved in the last two years? Anybody? Praise God. Aren't you glad God is patient? Amen. Amen. But he will judge. He has to judge because this is a wicked world in rebellion against him. And some have said, you know, if God doesn't judge Hollywood, he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. Well, we can look at that because they've certainly been the source of a lot of wicked and evil things. Revelation 20, 11 through 15, you might want to turn there and just follow this because we need to know exactly what's going to happen. I know you've heard it before. But we need to know what's going to happen. In verse 11, it says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And I don't want to get into all the theology that's in here, because that would be another five messages. But it's evident that God will judge. There will be a final day of judgment. And people, unless they're in Jesus Christ, will be judged according to their deeds. And there's not one of them who's going to go up there and negotiate with God and say, but I did some good things. Don't my good things outweigh the bad things? No. Did you do one evil thing? The wages of sin is death. And that's a sobering thought. But because God is just, he has to judge man's sin. And the only way to avoid that judgment is by receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Now, I said there was one aspect overlooked. The other overlooked aspect of this account, and praise God, because I don't want to leave you guys in, you know, in depression here. The fourth theme of this, and again, much overlooked, and I think the most important theme is here, God is unbelievably merciful he's unbelievably merciful as we look at this account even with all of Lot's compromise God saved righteous Lot and two of his daughters this is amazing and I actually believe this is more evidence that one cannot lose their salvation you see why because God had declared that Lot was righteous when God declares you righteous, he will save you. But let's look a little more closely. Even though Lot chose to stay in this sinful city, he was choosing willingly to not participate in the actual sin. Now, he put himself in a bad place, but he was not choosing to participate in the sin of the city, which he easily could have, couldn't he? We don't want to look how, overlook how important that fact is. You see, even though he was compromised, he had not, as Romans 1 says, given himself over to the sin. Remember, Peter said that the sin 
of the city tormented Lot. And I know that many of you, and probably all of you, are tormented every day like I am when we see a lot of the things that are going on in this world. We were certainly tormented on Sunday morning. The Bible makes it clear that if you continually practice sin and you're not convicted of that sin, then you're not in Christ. Lot may have compromised, but he was not practicing sin continually. 1 John 3, 9 and 10 says, No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, we're not talking about perfection. We're not saying we're not going to fall. We are. Everybody knows that. But we're talking about practicing in a matter of lifestyle and really not caring and almost challenging God to do something about it. And I look at this and I say, if God saved Lot, even in his compromised state, how much more assurance do we need that God will save us as well? I love Hebrews 7.25. Hebrews 7.25 says this about Jesus, our Savior and High Priest. It says, therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Saves us to the uttermost. I just love that. Titus 3, 5 through 8 says this. He saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, not our works, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's amazing. God's mercy is amazing. God's mercy couldn't be more wonderful. And you know what else about God's mercy it tells us in the Bible? It's new every morning. And I always say, praise God for that because I use all those mercies up every day. And I look forward to having that new mercy tomorrow morning. I'm going to need it. God is amazingly merciful. And he will save anyone who comes to him to the uttermost. And he is capable. Jesus said, I will not lose one of these that he has given to me. When we come to Christ and he imputes his righteousness to us, we will be saved. What an amazing, merciful God we serve. Well, I told you, I told you that this would be raw and I told you it would be real, but I certainly hope you see how relevant this account is. And we live in a world with just as much evil as Lot lived in, if not more. And we have to make decisions on how we're going to handle it. But the thing is, with Jesus Christ, everything changes. We can live in the world as Jesus told us to, but not be of the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't have to live in fear. Perfect love casts out all fear. We don't have to live in submission to those around us who would want to bring us into their sin. Instead, we can be the salt and the light that we're called to be. And I think the key to this whole thing is, what we want to learn from Lot is, I don't want to live in compromise. And if that's you tonight, if you know that you've been compromised, then you want to take advantage of God's great mercy. And you want to confess that sin to him, and you want to be set free from that tonight. And Jesus will do that for you. Turn from it. Change. Ask God to do the work through the power of the Spirit in your life. And he will accomplish that. And you know, one of the awesome things about this message tonight is that we end it with God's mercy and the knowledge of how much God loves us and cares about us and how Abraham was an example of that to Lot. And tonight, I think for the first time ever, we get to baptize two people who have experienced God's mercy in their life.